before I get into the sermon this morning, I just I want to acknowledge that for me, and I suspect for many of you, it's been, um, it's been a hard couple of weeks. There's been sort of the game face we all put on when we move through the world, and how are you doing? Fine. And then a lot of tears and side conversations about what's really going on in our lives, what we're feeling at this moment. So the invitation is just uh, to join me, to join one another in whatever it is you're feeling, to know that we're not in that space alone. We're here together. We're here in this community. I want to start by just uh, telling you that our seven-year-old son is really into Garfield comics. I mean, like, really into Garfield comics. We come back from the library. He's like 20 Garfield comic books. Um, when I was young, I loved Garfield, too. It's actually one of the ways I learned to read. I would read the Garfield comics. And so he and I enjoy reading these comics together, a lot of them. So I know almost all the Garfield comics now. In one of the comic strips, there's a, uh, in the first frame, like, John is getting ready to go for a jog. John is Garfield's owner, or maybe Garfield owns John. It's never quite clear. And um, Garfield notices this loose thread on John's uh, jogging outfit. And so as John is about to head out the door, Garfield, as a cat, is like, what? And, like, grabs the thread. And then in the next strip of the cartoon, like, John comes back in. His whole thing's like, Woo, totally unraveled. And he's holding this ball of yarn. And he's, like, completely naked. His whole outfit unraveled. We think that's hilarious. We just, like, <laughs> um, and, and it's a fitting image. The reason I lift that image up is it's such a fitting image um, because it reminds us how deeply everything is connected, how much everything is woven together. One thread, you know, what can happen if you just pull on this one thread? Well, the whole thing comes apart. It's all connected. And Susie pointed to this so beautifully in your call to worship this morning, that that sense of what's happening underneath the water deeply impacts in synchronized swimming what you see and experience above the water. The moment we're in right now painful as it is for many of us, is laying bare the connections between the systems of racism, the oppressive systems, excuse me, of racism and misogyny and violence against women. It's just laying those connections bare between the system of racism and how that oppression works and the system of misogyny and violence against women. We might not want to tell the stories unfolding right in front of us, but there is no hiding from it right now. The thread has been pulled. The emperor has no clothes. The facades have fallen away. And what we're seeing isn't pretty. I want to focus on two stories unfolding around us, deeply connected stories. One story is about race, racism, and whiteness, and the power of whiteness to continually reassert itself. And the other story is about harassment, violence, and assault against women. Neither story is easy to tell or to talk about, but church, this is the place we come together in this community to name those things that are painful, that are real, that only in community can we truly wrestle with and make sense of. We deal with the really real in this faith community. One thing I have noticed in our racial justice journey and in our learning is that it is often really hard to talk about the residual strength of whiteness, the ways that whiteness reasserts itself after every gain that people of color have made. For example, after the Civil War and the ending of slavery, new books were soon on the law, new laws were soon on the books that criminalized the most basic of human behavior by black people and we moved into a century of Jim Crow laws. 
The civil rights movement was a step forward and then mass incarceration and the recriminalization of black and brown bodies emerged. And in this moment we're in right now, this movement for black lives, this movement for native lives, for lives of color, we are again seeing this fierce opposition. It is hard to get our heads around this. We hear the statistics, we, we know the numbers on incarceration, on these disparities, but it's hard to really understand how powerful whiteness is, how it can slip into our thinking with so little notice. So join me in this little thought exercise. This is something I heard Reverend William Barber share a few weeks ago. Here it is. Imagine a presidential candidate who talked about Mexicans as rapists. Imagine a candidate who talked about building a wall and making Mexico pay for it. Imagine a candidate who talked about banning Muslims from this country. Imagine a candidate spreading conspiracy theories about the birthplace of the sitting president. A candidate who had been caught on tape talking about how he likes to grab and assault women that is easy to do when you're famous. Imagine a candidate who said that all of the women who accused him of assault and groping were liars. They were seeking fame. They'd been debunked. He was gonna sue them when it was all over. Imagine a nominee for the President of the United States of America saying those things. And I'm not talking about Donald Trump here. Imagine Barack Obama just doing one of those things during his candidacy or at any point in his presidency. Imagine Barack Obama saying one of those things, a fraction of one of those things. He would be done, he would be torn apart as a black man, his political career would be over. But Donald Trump, tall, white, blonde, can get away with this in part because of race. And the story we don't wanna tell is that eight years of an Obama presidency with a first lady of color and two children of color in the White House, all of that made Donald Trump's candidacy possible. On some level, Trump represents the spearhead of whiteness seeking to reassert itself, to restore power, to return America to its so-called rightful owners. It's a comforting story to say, well, this is just about Trump, but it's not. It's not about Trump at all. It represents this resurgence that we have seen throughout our history where whiteness will reassert its power and authority in this country again and again. And the crazy thing is that that's not even the main message I wanted to talk with you about this morning, but it's connected, it's deeply connected to what I really do wanna talk to you about this morning because the same dynamics that elevate whiteness, the same subtle dynamics that demand that people of color know their place and stay there, the same dynamics that deny or dismiss or diminish the full humanity of people of color, those same dynamics of oppression are at work in one of the other stories that we don't wanna talk about, the story about violence against women. The story about how common it still is for women to be harassed, catcalled, demeaned, and assaulted by men. When these stories surface, as they have in the past few weeks, we so badly want to write this off as an individual bad apple, one bad apple, but it's not. It's a bad orchard. It's a culture we live in where women are so often seen as objects where consent is not 
important. A few weeks ago, writer Kelly Oxford, using the hashtag not okay, she sent out a tweet. She said, women, tweet me your first assaults. These aren't just stats. I'll go first. Old man on city bus grabs me and smiles at me. I'm 12. Hashtag not okay. In response to this tweet, millions of women shared their stories. Reading some of the responses, it has made me weep. It has made me weep for the pain and the suffering, the violation, for the culture of silence that exists around this, these stories we don't want to tell. It made me weep for men, men who long for intimacy and vulnerability and love and have learned that these ways are ways to act to try to achieve that. It made me rage and it made me despair. So yeah, it's been a painful week. It's been a traumatic and painful couple of weeks for many of the women I know and love, for many of you, and I am sorry. It is painful to relive this trauma. This pain and trauma is similar to the pain and trauma of racism. They are different things, of course, but the violence women experience and then the all too often belittling or dismissal of their claims, the denial of what happened, the insistence, it was no big deal. That is all too similar to the reality that many people of color experience when they are told to calm down or be reasonable or it's not as bad as that or look, this is just protocol. It has been a hard couple of weeks. And there are plenty of men I know, including myself, whose hearts are heavy because we feel we haven't done enough to change this culture, this culture of complicit silence, which hurts us as well. So it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. And I put myself in your pews this morning. I imagined you were preaching to me and I was in the pew and I thought, what do I really want to hear this morning? What do I need to hear this morning? What would help hold me in this space. And I have to say, church, I would want to hear a word of hope, but not blind hope, not blind optimism, not righteous hope of we're gonna get these guys, not platitudes, not platitudes, but something grounded in hope as these painful and hard stories swirl around us. I would want to stand with you at the gates of hope, because that is the bedrock of our faith. That is what we put our faith in, in hope, not hell. As Unitarian Universalists, we claim, this is a central claim, that there is an underlying unity to creation, that we all come from the same source, the same divine source. That is Unitarianism in a nutshell, the unity and the oneness of creation. Universalism says we are all in this together. We are children of the universe. We all have value. We all belong. We share a common destiny. Our lives are bound together. At the heart of that, then, is this notion that a human being, in its various expressions, is a sacred and holy thing. A human body is a sacred and holy thing. Author Barbara Brown Taylor describes it this way. She says, looking at herself in the mirror, here I am. Here I am. This is the body like no other that my life has shaped. I live here. This is my soul's address. Once we are at home in our own body, 
then we can say to others, there you are. That is a body like no other that your life has shaped. That is your soul's address. Our Unitarian Universalist faith rejects any claim that says men are somehow better than women, that heterosexual people are somehow better than homosexual people, that white people are somehow better than people of color. We claim that those are artificial, those are false, those are idolatrous claims, that they have no basis in this underlying divine reality. And that, friends is where I feel a little bit of hope because that message is what we are teaching to our fifth and eighth grade youth in our whole live sexuality education program. This is a program we offer here. The shorthand is OWL. So it's not like people who are into birds and like owls. Our whole lives, our whole lives. It's a comprehensive sexuality education program. And in this program, We teach our fifth graders and our eighth graders that their bodies are sacred and holy. We teach them that pleasure is okay. We talk about consent. Through the curriculum, we talk about healthy consensual relationships. We talk about open communication, the importance of good decisions. We build self-esteem, and I dare say we save people's lives. This curriculum is taught by dedicated members of this church. They go to a weekend training And then they teach a nine-week unit for our fifth graders and an eight-month unit for our eighth graders. These teachers, wholly committed to this ministry, create a deeply countercultural space, a safe space, where our children and youth receive clear messages about self-worth, about sexual health, about responsibility, about justice, about inclusivity. Listen to what one of our OWL teachers has to say about teaching this curriculum. She says, I originally started teaching OWL because of my own non-existent sex ed upbringing. In high school, our sex ed class was extreme pictures of sexually transmitted diseases, (laughs) coupled with the message of do not ever, 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 ever have sex. (laughs) At home, my sex ed from my mom consisted of two sentences a week before I left for college. Claire... Do you know what sex is? (laughs) Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad we've had that conversation. (laughs) This, This church member who teaches Owl, Claire, she goes on to say, I am sometimes hesitant to tell people that I teach sex ed at church. Many people assume our whole lives, this curriculum, is just about sex, but it's way more than that. It's about relationships and gender identity and sexual orientation and body image and the media, masturbation, pregnancy, abortion. It's about communication. It's about consent. It's about knowing one's self. She goes on to say, it is wonderful that our church is an open and welcoming community. It's even more wonderful that we offer OWL in fifth and eighth grades. It is crucial that our daughters and our sons and transgender children know that it's not just boys will be boys, or it's just locker room talk, or that they should just ignore it. They need to know what consent is from the very beginning, Claire says. They need to understand basic human anatomy, how birth control works, and what to do or what to say when they're just not ready 
or don't like what is happening or being said around them. She continues, we have the awesome, overwhelming, and humbling power of raising the next generation. We need to make sure that this generation knows what consent is. We need to make sure this generation will be the ones breaking down walls, walls of silence, walls of harassment, rather than building them up. Another owl teacher shared this. An owl, much of what we teach boils down to unlearning gender roles and stereotypes. We take apart the inaccurate ideas about what men and women like and want and what they should and shouldn't talk about. When we realize that everyone has different wants and needs and that you learn about those wants and needs through a combination of verbal and nonverbal communication, the rules of consent become obvious. Church, this is what we're teaching right here. This is what we are teaching our fifth and eighth graders. This is the ministry we're offering here. It doesn't wipe away the larger cultural challenges we have, the pain and trauma of your individual life, but it gives me some measure of hope. Our whole lives is breaking down stereotypes and dismantling assumptions. It is creating a safe space for our young to talk about the condition of their soul as it relates to their gender identity, their sexual orientation, as it relates to being a real man. What does that mean, to being a real woman? What does that mean, to not being sure what your gender identity is? What does that mean? It creates a space to talk openly. I have no doubt that OWL saves lives and it sets in motion a new way of being, a new way of relating to one another. And so, I keep looking at one of our OWL teachers, and I know there are others in this room. I cannot thank you enough. You who have taken on this holy work of teaching this curriculum, helping our children and youth create new ways of loving their bodies, loving other bodies, helping to put justice and communication and consent at the center of relationships. So to our OWL teachers, I say thank you. We owe them our gratitude. We thank you. And to the women who are here and all who are here hurting today, I am sorry. We are holding you. We are with you. And to my brothers and the fathers, the grandfathers, the uncles, the young men who are in this house of worship this morning, may we keep each other accountable to being our best selves. May we hold each other faithful to a fully developed and mature masculinity. May we know what it means to be intimate with our partners, with our friends, with this world in a way that is healthy and life-saving. May it be so, and amen.